Chapter Twenty of Indian Summer by William Dean Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the morning, Mrs. Bowen received a note from her banker, covering a dispatch by cable from America. It was from Imogene's mother. It acknowledged the letters they had written and announced that she sailed that day for Liverpool. It was dated at New York, and it was to be inferred that after perhaps writing an answer to their letters she had suddenly made up her mind to come out yes that is it said imogene to whom mrs bowen hastened with the dispatch why should she have telegraphed to you she asked coldly but with a latent fire of resentment in her tone you must ask her when she comes returned mrs bowen with all her gentleness it won't be long now they looked as if they had neither of them slept but the girl's vigil seemed to have made her wild and fierce, like some bird that has beat itself all night against its cage, and still from time to time feebly strikes the bars with its wings. Mrs. Bowen was simply worn to apathy. "'What shall you do about this?' she asked. "'Do about it? Oh, I will think. I will try not to trouble you.' "'Imogene!' "'I shall have to tell Mr. Colville.' but I don't know that I shall tell him at once. Give me the dispatch, please. She possessed herself of it greedily, offensively. I shall ask you not to speak of it. I will do whatever you wish. Thank you. Mrs. Bowen left the room, but she turned immediately to reopen the door she had closed behind her. We were to have gone to Fiesole tomorrow, she said inquiringly. We can still go if the day is fine, returned the girl. Nothing is changed. I wish very much to go. Couldn't we go to-day? she added, with eager defiance. It's too late to-day, said Mrs. Bowen quietly. I will write to remind the gentleman. Thank you. I wish we could have gone to-day. You can have the carriage if you wish to drive anywhere, said Mrs. Bowen. I will take Effie to see Mrs. Amston. But Imogene changed her mind and went to call upon the two Mrs. Guicciardi, the result of an international marriage, whom Mrs. Bowen did not like very well. Imogene drove with them to the Cascine, where they bowed to a numerous military acquaintance, and they asked her if Mrs. Bowen would let her join them in a theatre party that evening. They were New Yorkers by birth, and it was to be a theatre party in the New York style. They were to be chaperoned by a young married lady, two young men cousins of theirs, just out from America, had taken the box. When Imogene returned home, she told Mrs. Bowen that she had accepted this invitation. Mrs. Bowen said nothing, but when one of the young men came up to hand Imogene down to the carriage, which was waiting with the others at the gate, she could not have shown a greater tolerance of his second-rate New Yorkiness if she had been a Boston dowager offering him the scrupulous hospitalities of her city. Imogene came in at midnight. She hummed an air of the opera as she took off her wraps and ornaments in her room, and this in the quiet of the hour had a terrible, almost profane effect. It was as if some other kind of girl had whistled. She showed the same nonchalance at breakfast, where she was prompt, and answered Mrs. Bowen's inquiries about her pleasure the night before with a liveliness that ignored the polite resolution that prompted them. Mr. Morton was the first to arrive, 
and if his discouragement began at once, the first steps masked themselves in a reckless welcome, which seemed to fill him with joy, and Mrs. Bowen with silent perplexity. The girl ran on about her evening at the opera, and about the weather, and the excursion they were going to make, and after an apparently needless ado over the bouquet which he brought her, together with one for Mrs. Bowen, she put it into her belt, and made Colville notice it when he came. He had not thought to bring flowers. He turned from her hilarity with anxious question to Mrs. Bowen, who did not meet his eye, and who snubbed Effie when the child found occasion to whisper, "'I think Imogene is acting very strangely for her, don't you, mamma? It seems as if going with those Guicciardi girls just once had spoiled her.' "'Don't make remarks about people, Effie,' said her mother sharply. "'It isn't nice in little girls, and I don't want you to do it. You talk too much lately.' Effie turned, grieving away from this rejection, and her face did not light up even at the whimsical sympathy in Colville's face, who saw that she had met a check of some sort. He had to take her on his knee and coax and kiss her before her wounded feelings were visibly healed. He put her down with a sighing wish that some one could take him up and soothe his troubled sensibilities too, and kept her hand in his while he sat waiting for the last of those last moments in which the hurrying delays of ladies preparing for an excursion seem never to end. When they were ready to get into the carriage, the usual contest of self-sacrifice arose, which Imogene terminated by mounting to the front seat. Mr. Morton hastened to take the seat beside her, and Colville was left to sit with Effie and her mother. "'You old people will be safer back there,' said Imogene. It was a little joke which she addressed to the child, but a gleam from her eye as she turned to speak to the young man at her side visited Colville in desperate defiance. He wondered what she was about in that allusion to an idea which she had shrunk from so sensitively hitherto but he found himself in a situation which he could not penetrate on any point. When he spoke with Mrs. Bowen, it was with a dark undercurrent of conjecture as to how and when she expected him to tell Mr. Morton of his relation to Imogene, or whether she still expected him to do it. When his eyes fell upon the face of the young man, he despaired as to the terms in which he should put the fact. Any form in which he tacitly dramatized it remained very embarrassing, for he felt bound to say that while he held himself promised in the matter, he did not allow her to feel herself so. A sky of American blueness and vastness, a mellow sun and a delicate breeze did all that these things could for them, as they began the long, devious climb of the hills crowned by the ancient Etruscan city. At first they were all in the constraint of their own and one another's moods, known or imagined, and no talk began till the young clergyman turned to Imogene and asked, after a long look at the smiling landscape, "'What sort of weather do you suppose they are having in Buffalo to-day?' "'At Buffalo,' she repeated, as if the place had only a dim existence in her remotest consciousness. "'Oh, the ice isn't near out of the lake yet. You can't count on it before the first of May.' "'And the first of May comes sooner or later, according to the season,' said Colville. "'I remember coming on once in the middle of the month, 
and the river was so full of ice between Niagara Falls and Buffalo that I had to shut the car window that I'd kept open all the way through southern Canada. But we have very little of that local weather at home. Our weather is as democratic and continental as our political constitution. Here it's March or May any time from September till June, according as there's snow on the mountains or not. The young man smiled. "'But don't you like,' he asked with deference, "'this slow, orderly advance of the Italian spring, "'where the flowers seem to come out one by one, "'and every blossom has its appointed time?' "'Oh, yes, it's all very well in its way, "'but I prefer the rush of the American spring. "'No thought of mild weather this morning, "'a warm, gusty rain to-morrow night, "'day after to-morrow, "'a burst of blossoms and flowers "'and young leaves and birds.' I don't know whether we were made for our climate or our climate was made for us, but its impatience and lavishness seem to answer some inner demand of our go-ahead souls. This happens to be the week of the peach blossoms here, and you see their pink everywhere to-day, and you don't see anything else in the blossom line. But imagine the American spring abandoning a whole week of her precious time to the exclusive use of peach blossoms. She wouldn't do it. She's got too many other things on hand. Effie had stretched out over Colville's lap, and with her elbow sunk deep in his knee, was resting her chin in her hand, and taking the facts of the landscape thoroughly in. "'Do they have just a week?' she asked. "'Not an hour more or less,' said Colville. "'If they found an almond blossom hanging round anywhere after their time came, they would make an awful row.' and if any lazy little peach-blow hadn't got out by the time their week was up, it would have to stay in till next year, the pear-blossoms wouldn't let it come out. "'Wouldn't they?' murmured the child, in dreamy sympathy with this belated peach-blow. "'Well, that's what people say. In America it would be allowed to come out any time. It's a free country.' Mrs. Bowen offered to draw Effie back to a posture of more decorum. But Colville put his arm around the little girl. "'Oh, let her stay. It doesn't incommode me, and she must be getting such a novel effect of the landscape.' The mother fell back into her former attitude of jaded passivity. He wondered whether she had changed her mind about having him speak to Mr. Morton. Her quiescence might well have been indifference. One could have said, knowing the whole situation, that she had made up her mind to let things take their course, and struggle with them no longer. He could not believe that she felt content with him. She must feel far otherwise, and he took refuge, as he had the power of doing, from the discomfort of his own thoughts in jesting with the child, and mocking her with this extravagance and that. The discomfort then became merely a dull ache that insisted upon itself at intervals, like a grumbling tooth. The prospect was full of that mingled wildness and subordination that gives its supreme charm to the Italian landscape, and without elements of great variety it combined them in infinite picturesqueness. There were olive orchards and vineyards, and again vineyards and olive orchards. Closer to the farmhouses and cottages there were peaches and other fruit trees and kitchen gardens. Broad ribbons of grain waved between the ranks of trees. Around the white villas the spires of the cypresses pierced the blue air. Now and then they came to a villa with weather-beaten statues strutting about its parterres. 
a mild pleasant heat brooded upon the fields and roofs and the city dropping lower and lower as they mounted softened and blended its towers and monuments in a sombre mass shot with gleams of white colville spoke to imogene who withdrew her eyes from it with a sigh after long brooding upon the scene you can do nothing with it i see with what the landscape it's too full of every possible interest what a history is written all over it public and private if you don't take it simply like any other landscape it becomes an oppression it's well the tourists come to italy so ignorant and keep so otherwise they couldn't live to get home again the past would crush them imogene scrutinized him as if to extract some personal meaning from his words and then turned her head away the clergyman addressed him with what was like a respectful toleration of the drolleries of a gifted but eccentric man the flavour of whose talk he was beginning to taste you don't really mean that one shouldn't come to italy as well informed as possible well i did said colville but i don't the young man pondered this and imogene started up with an air of rescuing them from each other as if she would not let mr morton think colville trivial or colville consider the clergyman stupid but would do what she could to take their minds off the whole question perhaps she was not very clear as to how this was to be done at any rate she did not speak and mrs bowen came to her support from whatever motive of her own it might have been from a sense of the injustice of letting mr morton suffer from the complications that involved herself and the others the affair had been going very hitchily ever since they started with the burden of the conversation left to the two men and that helpless girl if it were not to be altogether a failure she must interfere did you ever hear of graziano when you were in venice she asked mr morton is he one of their new water-colourists returned the young man i heard they had quite a school there now no said mrs bowen ignoring her failure as well as she could he was a famous talker he loved to speak an infinite deal of nothing more than any man in venice an ancestor of mine mr morton said colville a poor honest man who did his best to make people forget that the ladies were silent thank you mrs bowen for mentioning him i wish he were with us to-day the young man laughed oh in the merchant of venice no other said colville i confess said mrs bowen that i am rather stupid this morning i suppose it's the softness of the air it's been harsh and irritating so long it makes me drowsy don't mind us returned colville we will call you at important points they were driving into a village at which people stop sometimes to admire the works of art in its church here for example is what place is this he asked of the coachman san domenico i should know it again by its beggars of all ages and sexes they swarmed around the carriage which the driver had instinctively slowed to oblige them and thrust forward their hands and hats colville gave effie his small change to distribute among them at the sight of which they streamed down the street from every direction those who had received brought forward the halt and blind and did not scruple to propose being rewarded for this service at the same time they did not mind his laughing in their faces they laughed too and went off content 
or as nearly so as beggars ever are. He buttoned up his pocket as they drove on more rapidly. I am the only person of no principle, except Effie, in the carriage, and yet I am at this moment carrying more blessings out of this village than I shall ever know what to do with. Mrs. Bowen, I know, is regarding me with severe disapproval. She thinks I ought to have sent the beggars of San Domenico to Florence, where they would all be shut up in the Pia Casa di Ricovero, and taught some useful occupation. It's terrible in Florence. You can walk through Florence now and have no appeal made to your better nature that is not made at the appellant's risk of imprisonment. When I was there before, you had opportunities of giving at every turn. You can send a cheque to the Pia Casa, said Mrs. Bowen. Ah, but what good would that do me? When I give, I want the pleasure of it. I want to see my beneficiary cringe under my bounty. But I've tried in vain to convince you that the world has gone wrong in other ways. Do you remember the one-armed man whom we used to give to on the Lungarno? That persevering sufferer has been repeatedly arrested for mendicancy, and obliged to pay a fine out of his hard earnings to escape being sent to your Pia Casa. Mrs. Bowen smiled and said, Was he living yet? in a pensive tone of reminiscence. She was even more than patient of Colville's nonsense. It seemed to him that the light under her eyelids was sometimes a grateful light. Confronting Imogene and the young man, whose hopes of her he was to destroy at the first opportunity, the lurid moral atmosphere which he breathed seemed threatening to become a thing apparent to sense, and to be about to blot the landscape. He fought it back as best he could, and kept the hovering cloud from touching the earth by incessant effort. At times he looked over the side of the carriage, and drew secretly a long breath of fatigue. It began to be borne in upon him that these ladies were using him ill, in leaving him the burden of their entertainment. He became angry, but his heart softened, and he forgave them again, for he conjectured that he was the cause of the cares that kept them silent. He felt certain that the affair had taken some new turn. He wondered if Mrs. Bowen had told Imogene what she had demanded of him, but he could only conjecture and wonder in the dreary undercurrent of thought that flowed evenly and darkly on with the talk he kept going. He made the most he could of the varying views of Florence, which the turns and mounting levels of the road gave him. He became affectionately grateful to the young clergyman when he replied promptly and fully, and took an interest in the objects or subjects he brought up. Neither Mrs. Bowen nor Imogene was altogether silent. The one helped on at times wearily, and the other broke at times for her abstraction. Doubtless the girl had undertaken too much in insisting upon a party of pleasure with her mind full of so many things and doubtless Mrs. Bowen was sore with a rankling resentment at her insistence, and vexed at herself for having yielded to it. If, at her time of life, and with all her experience of it, she could not rise under this inner load, Imogene must have been crushed by it. Her starts from the dreamy oppression, if that were what kept her silent, took the form of aggression, when she disagreed with Colville about things he was saying, or attacked him for this or that thing which he had said in times past. It was an unhappy and unamiable self-assertion, 
which he was not able to compassionate so much when she resisted or defied Mrs. Bowen, as she seemed seeking to do at every point. Perhaps another would not have felt it so. It must have been largely in his consciousness. The young clergyman seemed not to see anything in these bursts but the indulgence of a gay caprice, though his laughing at them did not alleviate the effect to Colville, who, when he turned to Mrs. Bowen for her reliance, was astonished with a prompt snub, unmistakable to himself, however imperceptible to others. He found what diversion and comfort he could in the party of children who beset them at a point near the town, and followed the carriage trying to sell them various light and useless trifles made of straw, fans, baskets, parasols, and the like. He bought recklessly of them and gave them to Effie, whom, he assured, without the applause of the ladies, and with the grave question of the young clergyman, that the vendors were little Etruscan girls, all at least twenty-five hundred years old. It's very hard to find any Etruscans under that age. Most of the grown-up people are three thousand. The child humoured his extravagance with the faith in fable which children are able to command, and said, Oh, tell me about them, while she pushed up closer to him, and began to admire her presents, holding them up before her, and dwelling fondly upon them one by one. "'Oh, there's very little to tell,' answered Colville. "'They're mighty close people, and always keep themselves very much to themselves. But wouldn't you like to see a party of Etruscans of all ages, even down to little babies only eleven or twelve hundred years old, come driving into an American town? It would make a great excitement, wouldn't it?' It would be splendid. Yes, we could give them a collation in the basement of the city hall, and drive them out to the cemetery. The Americans and Etruscans are very much alike in that. They always show you their tombs. Will they in Fiesole? How you always like to burrow into the past, interrupted Imogene. Well, it's rather difficult to burrowing into the future, returned Colville defensively. Accepting the challenge, he added, Yes, I should really like to meet a few Etruscans at Fiesole this morning. I should feel as if I got amongst my contemporaries at last. They would understand me." The girl's face flushed. Then no one else can understand you? Apparently not. I am the great American incompris. I'm sorry for you, she returned feebly, and in fact sarcasm was not her strong point. When they entered the town they found the Etruscans preoccupied with other visitors, whom at various points in the quaint little piazza they surrounded in dense groups, to their own disadvantage as guides and beggars and dealers in straw goods. One of the groups reluctantly dispersed to devote itself to the new arrivals, and these then perceived that it was a party of artists, scattered about and sketching, which had absorbed the attention of the population. Colville went to the restaurant to order lunch, leaving the ladies to the care of Mr. Morton. When he came back he found the carriage surrounded by the artists, who had turned out to be the Inglehart boys. They had walked up to Fiesole the afternoon before, and they had been sketching there all morning. With the artists' indifference to the conventional objects of interest, they were still ignorant of what ought to be seen in Fiesole by tourists and they accepted Colville's proposition to be of his party in going the rounds of the cathedral, the museum, and the view from that point of the wall called the Belvedere. 
they found that they had been at the belvedere before without knowing that it merited particular recognition and some of them had made sketches from it of bits of architecture and landscape and of figure amongst the women with straw fans and baskets to sell who thronged round the whole party again and interrupted the prospect in the church they differed amongst themselves as to the best bits for study and colville listened in whimsical despair to the enthusiasm of their likings and dislikings all that was so far from him now but in the museum which had only a thin interest based upon a small collection of art and archaeology he suffered a real affliction in the presence of a young italian couple who were probably plighted lovers they went before a grey-haired pair who might have been the girl's father and mother and they looked at none of the objects though they regularly stopped before them and waited till their guide had had his say about them the girl clinging tight to the young man's arm knew nothing but him her mouth and eyes were set in a passionate concentration of her being upon him and he seemed to walk in a dream of her from time to time they peered upon each other's faces and then they paused rapt and indifferent to all besides the young painters had their jokes about it even mr morton smiled and mrs bowen recognized it but imogene did not smile she regarded the lovers with an interest in them scarcely less intense than their interest in each other and a cold perspiration of question broke out on colville's forehead was that her ideal of what her own engagement should be had she expected him to behave in that way to her and to accept from her a devotion like that girl's how bitterly he must have disappointed her it was so impossible to him that the thought of it made him feel that he must break all ties which bound him to anything like it and yet he reflected that the time was when he could have been equal to that and even more after lunch the painters joined them again and they all went together to visit the ruins of the roman theatre and the stretch of etruscan wall beyond it the former seems older than the latter whose huge blocks of stone lie as firmly and evenly in their courses as if placed there a year ago the turf creeps up to the edge at top and some small trees nod along the crest of the wall whose ancient face clean and bare looks sternly out over a vast prospect now young and smiling in the first delight of spring the piety or interest of the community which guards the entrance to the theatre by a fee of certain centesimi may be concerned in keeping the wall free from the grass and vines which are stealing the half-excavated arena back to forgetfulness and decay but whatever agency it was it weakened the appeal that the wall made to the sympathy of the spectators they could do nothing with it the artists did not take their sketch-blocks from their pockets but in the theatre where a few broken columns marked the place of the stage and the stone benches of the auditorium were here and there reached by a flight of uncovered steps the human interest returned i suspect that there is such a thing as a ruins being too old said colville our Etruscan friends made the mistake of building their wall several thousand years too soon for our purpose. Yes, consented the young clergyman. It seems as if our own race became alienated from us through the effect of time, don't you think, sir? I mean, of course, terrestrially. 
The artists looked uneasy, as if they had not counted upon anything of this kind, and they began to scatter about for points of view. Effie got her mother's leave to run up and down one of the stairways, if she would not fall. Mrs. Bowen sat down on one of the lower steps, and Mr. Morton took his place respectfully near her. "'I wonder how it looks from the top,' Imogene asked us of Colville, with more meaning than seemed to belong to the question properly. "'There's nothing like going to see,' he suggested. He helped her up, giving her his hand from one course of seats to another. When they reached the point which commanded the best view of the whole, she sat down, and he sank at her feet, but they did not speak of the view. "'Theodore, I want to tell you something,' she said abruptly. "'I have heard from home.' "'Yes,' he replied, in a tone which he did his best to express a readiness for any fate. "'Mother has telegraphed. She is coming out. She is on her way now. She will be here very soon.' Colville did not know exactly what to say to these passionately consecutive statements. "'Well,' he said at last, "'Well,' she repeated his word, "'What do you intend to do?' "'Intend to do in what event?' he asked, lifting his eyes for the first time to the eyes which he felt burning down upon him. "'If she should refuse?' Again he could not command an instant answer, but when it came it was a fair one. "'It isn't for me to say what I shall do,' he replied gravely. "'Or, if it is, I can only say that I will do whatever you wish.' "'Do you wish nothing?' "'Nothing but your happiness.' "'Nothing but my happiness,' she retorted. "'What is my happiness to me? Have I ever sought it?' I can't say, he answered, but if I did not think you would find it. I shall find it if ever I find it in yours, she interrupted. And what shall you do if my mother will not consent to our engagement? The experienced and sophisticated man, for that in no ill way was what Colville was, felt himself on trial for his honour and his manhood by this simple girl, this child. He could not endure to fall short of her ideal of him at that moment, no matter what error or calamity the fulfilment involved. If you feel sure that you love me, Imogene, it will make no difference to me what your mother says. I would be glad of her consent. I should hate to go counter to her will. But I know that I am good enough man to be true and keep you all my life the first in all my thoughts, and that's enough for me. But if you have any fear, any doubt of yourself, now is the time. Imogene rose to her feet as in some turmoil of thought or emotion that would not suffer her to remain quiet. Oh, keep still. Don't get up yet. Hold on a minute, please, came from the artists in different parts of the theatre, and half a dozen imploring pencils were waved in the air. They are sketching you, said Colville and she sank compliantly into her seat again. "'I have no doubt for myself, no,' she said, as if there had been no interruption. "'Then we need have no anxiety in meeting your mother,' said Colville, with a light sigh, after a moment's pause. "'What makes you think she will be unfavourable?' "'I don't think that, but I thought—I I didn't know but—' "'What?' "'Nothing now.' Her lips were quivering. He could see her struggle for self-control, but he could not see it unmoved. "'Poor child,' he said, 
putting out his hand toward her. "'Don't take my hand. They're all looking,' she begged. He forbore, and they remained silent and motionless a little while, before she had recovered herself sufficiently to speak again. "'Then we are promised to each other whatever happens,' she said. "'Yes. And we will never speak of this again. But there is one thing. Did Mrs. Bowen ask you to tell Mr. Morton of our engagement?' "'She said that I ought to do so.' "'And did you say you would?' I don't know, but I suppose I ought to tell him. I don't wish you to, cried the girl. You don't wish me to tell him? No, I will not have it. Oh, very well, it's much easier not. But it seems to me that it's only fair to him. Did you think of that yourself? she demanded fiercely. No, returned Colville, with sad self-recognition. I'm afraid I'm not apt to think of the comforts and rights of other people. It was Mrs. Bowen who thought of it. I knew it. But I must confess that I agreed with her, though I would have preferred to postpone it till we heard from your family. He was thoughtfully silent a moment. Then he said, But if their decision is to have no weight with us, I think he ought to be told at once. Do you think I am flirting with him? "'Imogene!' exclaimed Colville reproachfully. "'That's what you imply. That's what she implies. "'You're very unjust to Mrs. Bowen, Imogene. "'Oh, you always defend her. "'It isn't the first time you've told me I was unjust to her. "'I don't mean that you are willingly unjust, "'or could be so to any living creature, least of all to her. "'But I—we owe her so much. "'She has been so patient.' What do we owe her? How has she been patient? She has overcome her dislike to me. Oh, indeed? And, and I feel under obligation to her for, in a thousand little ways, and I should be glad to feel that we were acting with her approval. I should like to please her. You wish to tell Mr. Morton? I think I ought. To please Mrs. Bowen. Tell him, then. You always cared more to please her than me. Perhaps you stayed in Florence to please her?" She rose and ran down the broken seats and ruined steps, so recklessly and yet so sure-footedly, that it seemed more like a flight than a pace to the place where Mrs. Bowen and Mr. Morton were talking together. Colville followed as he could, slowly and with a heavy heart. A good thing develops itself in infinite and unexpected shapes of good, a bad thing into manifold and astounding evils. This mistake was whirling away beyond his recall in hopeless mazes of error. He saw this generous young spirit betrayed by it to ignoble and unworthy excess, and he knew that he and not she was to blame. He was helpless to approach her, to speak with her, to set her right, great as the need of that was, and he could see that she avoided him. But their relations remained outwardly undisturbed. The artists brought their sketches for inspection and comment, and, without speaking to each other, he and Imogene discussed them with the rest. When they started homeward the painters said they were coming a little way with them for a send-off and then going back to spend the night in Fiesole. They walked beside the carriage, talking with Mrs. Bowen and Imogene, who had taken their places, with Effie between them, on the back seat. And when they took their leave, Colville and the young clergyman,
who had politely walked with them, continued on foot a little further, till they came to the place where the highway to Florence divided into the new road and the old. At this point it steeply overtops the fields on one side, which is shored up by a wall some ten or twelve feet deep, and here, round a sharp turn of the hill on the other side, came a peasant driving a herd of the black pigs of the country. Mrs. Bowen's horses were, perhaps pampered, beyond the habitual resignation of Florentine horses to all manner of natural phenomena. They reared at sight of the sable crew, and backing violently uphill, set the carriage across the road, with its hind wheels a few feet from the brink of the wall. The coachman sprang from his seat, the ladies and the child remained in theirs as if paralysed. Colville ran forward to the side of the carriage. "'Jump, Mrs. Bowen, jump! Effie! Imogene!' The mother and the little one obeyed. He caught them in his arms and set them down. The girl sat still, staring at him with reproachful, with disdainful eyes. He leaped forward to drag her out. She shrank away, and then he flew to help the coachman, who had the maddened horses by the bit. "'Let go!' he heard the young clergyman calling to him. "'She's safe!' He caught a glimpse of Imogene, whom Mr. Morton had pulled from the other side of the carriage. He struggled to free his wrist from the curb-bit chain of the horse through which he had plunged it in his attempt to seize the bridle. The wheels of the carriage went over the wall, he felt himself whirled into the air, and then swung ruining down into the writhing and crashing heap at the bottom of the wall. End of chapter 20